We're in Genesis 32 tonight, and usually when you get to this chapter, what people do that preach, they go immediately to the end of the chapter and preach about what? The wrestling match. It's all about the wrestling match. That's what this whole thing's about as far as they're concerned. And that's the total focus. And in that section, Jacob is wrestling all night. We'll get to that next week. But that's only one part of a larger narrative. There's, this section contains two chapters, Genesis 32 and Genesis 33. They form a unit, those two. They go together. It's part of one story. And uh, Genesis 32, you could say, is part one. Genesis 33, we could say, is part two. These two chapters are tied together by the theme of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that, along with that theme, of course, as usual in Genesis, a lot of drama ensues. And uh, you'll see that also. As we consider this thought of reconciliation over the next couple of weeks, what first gets our attention is in verses 1 and 2, a reminder. A reminder in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mayanam. Verse 1, Jacob went on his way. That takes us back to the previous chapter, chapter 31. What happened there? Jacob departed Laban's house. And he's on his way back home. He'd been there 20 years, and it's time to go. How do we know it's time to go? Well, if you, as we said last week, for one thing, Laban's attitude had changed toward Jacob. God had prospered Laban while Jacob was working for him for 14 years. And everything was going great for Laban because of Jacob being there, God blessing Jacob, uh, Laban through Jacob. Uh, but that, that all changed uh, the last six years. God turned the tables on Laban. And he began to bless Jacob in a great way. Jacob got all, a lot of the flock, and Jacob was prosperous. So much so, Laban and his sons became jealous of Jacob. That motivated Jacob to leave. Jacob saw Laban's face, and he said, Oh, wow, his attitude towards me is not what it once was. He's not happy with me now. It's time to leave. But what really uh, sealed this commitment to leave was what God said. Look back in chapter 31, verse 3. God said in 31, 3, Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers. So now Jacob has no choice but to return to go back to his homeland. So he tells his wife what the Lord said, and they agree with him. And at the end of verse 16, they said, do whatever God has said to you. And so they do. They, they depart, but they leave secretly, unfortunately, without telling Laban. That was not the right thing to do. They, they did it that they went about it that way. And then when they didn't tell him goodbye or anything, just took off and snuck out and left town. And when Laban found out later on, needless to say, he catches up with them, he confronts them, and he even would have harmed them probably, except for the fact that in chapter 31, God intervened in a dream and, says, and basically says, don't do any harm to Jacob. And so all Laban could do was to come up with a lame treaty at the end of chapter 31, which is based more on distrust and trust. And he said, look, I'm not going to harm you. You promise not to harm me, and we'll all live in peace together. And that was enough of a treaty to say, okay, good. It's all said and done. Let's leave. Jacob left. Verse, chapter 32, verse 1, now Jacob went on his way. Now he's traveling south towards Canaan. He's got to go back to Canaan. That's where he came from originally. He's got to go back there. And at this point, he's about 23 miles north of the Dead Sea. He's east of the Jordan River. When suddenly he's met by this strange sight, angels of God. Can you imagine if you're on your way somewhere and all of a sudden you see in front of you the angels of God? Now, 
Tell me that nobody in here has ever seen that. If you have, please. I'd rather, actually, I'd rather not know about that. There's no tell, details given as to how this happened. It doesn't say anything about a dream or a vision. It just says simply he was met by the angels of God as he journeyed. Now, this is the second time, the second time Jacob has seen angels, the angels of God. Same phrase is used twice. The first time is in Genesis 28. Go back with me to Genesis 28. I know we've gone back here several times. Genesis 28, verse 10. This is the first time. 28.10, then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. That's where Laban lives. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place, put it under his head, and lay down in that place. He had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set on the earth with, the, with its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the what? The angel of God. Same phrase as in chapter 32. Angels of God descending, ascending, and descending upon it. That dream happened to Laban going to Laban's house 20 years earlier than chapter 32. And along with the dream, there was a message. Look at chapter 28, verse 13. This is what God says. Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I'll give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. Notice that phrase again, and will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in his place, and I did not know it. And so the message of the Lord to Jacob, after he sees these angels of God, is I'm going to be with you on this journey, going to Laban's house. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to oversee you. I'm going to protect you. All those ideas are inherent in, the, in those terms. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm sending you out of the land. I'm going to bring you back to the land, and I'm going to bless you with offspring. Now, if you're wondering, why do you keep reading this Genesis 28 every week? Why do you keep referring back to this? It's because God keeps reminding us of his promises. Again and again, as we go forward from chapter 28, the Lord says, I want to remind you of something. I have promises I made, and I aim to keep them. Now on his return journey... That was 20 years before, chapter 28. Now on his return journey, he encounters what? The angels of God again at the beginning of the journey and on the return journey. And what does that conjure up in your mind, his mind? The promises of God to him back in chapter 28. The presence of the angels of God showed him, hey, God is still with you. He's still with you. God was with you on the journey to Laban's house. God was with you. All that time, during the stay at Laban's house, those 20 years of agony you went through, yet God was with you, and God is going to still be with you as you return home. He's never left. He's still with you. Now, when he was at Laban's house, to show you that God was with him there, in chapter 31, verse 3, God says, I want you to return, and I will be with you. In chapter 31, verse 5, just, Jacob testifies, and he says, the God of my father has been with me. That's why he was at Laban's house. And then later when he's contending with Laban about the way Laban treated him, and he mistreated him, I should say, he says in chapter 31, verse 42, Jacob says, if God had not been for me, you surely would have sent me away empty-handed. You mistreated me the whole time, and yet God was for me, as we quote in Romans 8, if God's for us, then what? Who can be against us? 
That means God's promises made 20 years earlier are still valid after 20 years. This visit by the angels of God is meant to reassure Jacob, hey, God is still with you. The promises of God are unchanging after all this time. Jacob sees the angels. Look at verse 2, and he says in chapter 32, this is God's camp. Now, when he saw the angels in the dream, what did he say in chapter 28? He said, this is none other than the house of God. Now he says, this is God's camp. Both times he realized God's presence. God's doing something. God is with us. And just as he named the first location in chapter 28 Bethel, which means house of God, now he names this location Maenaim, which means two camps. There's two camps. I take it that, that, that is, he's talking about God's camp, and there is Jacob's camp. God's camp is traveling with Jacob's camp on the way back. He's there for him. He's there with him. So guess what? Jacob doesn't need to worry about anything. Does that make sense? He doesn't need to worry about anything because why? God's with him all this time. I love the promise in Psalm 34, 7. It says this, the angel of the Lord. Now, that's not angels, plural, in that verse. It's the angel, singular, of the Lord, the, the Lord himself in the person of Christ. The angel of the Lord encamps. What does he do? He encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. What a great verse. The Lord sets up camp around his people, watching over them. Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says, that, says to the people who trust the Lord, it says the Lord will give his angels, plural now, we're talking about the angels of God again, his angels, his angels uh, charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bury you up in their hands that you do not even strike your foot against the stone. That's how much watch care angels have. God's angels watching over his people. That's something we don't think about very often, do we? We don't think about angels watching over us, but that's the teaching of Scripture. You know, it's interesting, angels even watched over Jesus himself. And I love this verse in Mark 1.13. I never hear this verse quoted. Mark 1.13, talking about the temptation of Christ. And it says of Jesus, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. We all know that. And it goes on to say this, and he was with the wild beast. Sounds scary, doesn't it? To be with the wild beast in the desert, in the wilderness. And it goes on to say, and the angels of God were, and the angels rather, were ministering to him. Angels protecting Jesus from the wild beast during or after the temptation. Amazing statement. At the arrest of Jesus before the cross, Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says this, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, more than 12,000 angels? Don't you think I could call upon God right now? And I could just, I could take care of business here. With all these angels at my disposal. Now, he didn't do that. He endured the wrath of God instead. But angels were at his disposal. And if you think the angels only were around for Jesus and only around for the Old Testament people, then you would be wrong because they're around for us today. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all, are these angels, are these angels not all ministering spirits, a minister sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It's amazing. Isn't that interesting? Angels still serve God's people today. 
Not only in the Old Testament, not only in the Gospels, and now and for, and for always, they're serving God's people uh, in one way or another. Now, the, uh, the author of Hebrews is arguing the point in Hebrews, uh, Jesus is superior to the angels. But still, to, to have this ministry of the angels serving God's people in some way is amazing. Maybe one day we'll find out in heaven how often they did maybe save us, protect us from danger or serve us in some way. We don't see them, but they're working our, on our behalf. We don't see the Lord, for that matter. He's working on our behalf, too. You say, well, I don't believe in angels. Well, then you don't believe what Jesus said. You don't believe what he said in the Gospels about angels. You don't believe what the Old Testament said about it. You don't believe what the New Testament says about it. But the Lord says, no, there's angels that minister to believers even to this day. You know, there's so many things going for us, right? If God is for us in so many ways, uh, we have the Holy Spirit to indwell us, the scriptures to guide us, prayer to help us in our daily lives, and so many other things, and we have angels on top of all that. The Lord opened Jacob's eyes to actually see these angels in Genesis 32, which is a very vivid way of the Lord letting Jacob know, hey, I'm still with you. Remember the angels of God you saw on the way to Laban's house? Now you're leaving Laban's house. Guess what? We're still with you. I'm still with you. The angels are still with you. God, what God had promised, he had not forgotten. What he said 20 years ago is still valid to this day in Jacob's time. For that matter, think about this. What the Lord said 2,000 years ago in the New Testament still stands today. What the Lord said 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament still stands today. His promises are unchanging. They don't become invalid through the passage of time. Well, that was years ago. That was centuries ago. It doesn't, that doesn't matter. They're not invalid. You can rest on his promises just as Jacob did in his time. So there's a reminder to Jacob. The Lord says, Jacob, all this time, I haven't left you. I'm still with you. And this is good to know right before what's about to happen here. Second thing I want you to notice is a priority. Not only a reminder, but a priority. And look at verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir to the country of Edom. Now one challenge is done. Another challenge remains. Jacob is finished with Laban, but now another individual is on his mind. That's his brother Esau. He just, Jacob's getting hammered here one way or another. It's like a bowling pin. This is the last, the last time we read about Esau was in chapter 28. Why are we reading about him again? Isn't he in the past? Isn't his time over? This is the present, 20 years later. I mean, it's been 20 years, right? Two decades. Isn't it? It's time for, the Lord said, I want you to settle down, go back to Canaan, settle down there. And isn't he supposed to settle down and enjoy the blessings of God? Well, that's what we thought would happen, but not so fast. Uh, Jacob is heading home, and that reminds him of home. And home reminds him of what happened before he left his home. He literally uh, was, uh, treated his brother Esau disgracefully, absolutely disgracefully. He ripped him off twice. Chapter 25, Jacob took advantage of his brother by stealing his birthright, uh, the, the rights of the firstborn son. Esau was the firstborn son. You can read about that in Genesis 25. Then in Genesis 27, Jacob deceived both his father, ultimately his brother, again out of the blessing how do you think about Esau felt about that? Well, let's go back and see his reaction. We've read this before, but go back to chapter 27, verse 34. Chapter 27, verse 34. 
This is how Esau reacted after both getting stolen, getting his blessing and his birthright stolen. He says this, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, a woeful, wailing cry. And he said to his father, bless me even also me, O my father. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then Esau said, is he not rightly called Jacob? For he has supplanted me, he's deceived me, he's tricked me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. That's a sad story. Very sad. The Lord had given Rebekah a, a prophecy uh, when, when the children were born that Jacob, the younger son, will receive the birthright. He'd receive the blessing. He'd be the one that was blessed. Even though he was the youngest son, the oldest son's always the one that's blessed. But deception, and they, but, but that happened, but you know, he took all the blessing and birthright through deception, through cheating. That's not God's way, by the way. That was man's way. Uh, that was doing, we're supposed to do God's work God's way. He did God's work his own sinful way. That's not how it's done. Nevertheless, needless to say, Esau is sorrowful. He's still sorrowful what happened. The way it went down was horrible. He's sorrowful. And he is also enraged at Jacob. Look at verse 41, chapter 27, verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge. What did you, you know, surprisingly, right? He bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, listen to this. The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she's always got her spies out there listening to everything, she went out, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey you, my voice, and arise and flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Go up there, go up north and get out of here and go to Laban, Uncle Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. She knows he's mad. He's furious. Until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets about what you did to him. Now, Esau now has a grudge against Jacob. He holds a grudge. That word has to do with feelings of hostility. He's very angry uh, at him. Jacob's brother has now become Jacob's enemy. He has one thought on his mind. I'm going to assassinate my brother. I'm literally going to kill him. That's what he says. Rebecca finds out and says, I want you to stay with Uncle Laban up there for a while until your brother gets over it. But how does she know he's going to get over his anger? How does she know he's going to get over it? That was all 20 years ago in the past. How does Esau feel now about Jacob? Does he still plan to kill him? Does he still hold a grudge against him? Now, I've heard a lot of people in my life, different, different times, who had, had they got into it with their, they've held a grudge for years. They've gotten into it with their family members over something. I remember one case where uh, the, at the, you know, bad things happen at funerals to people a lot of times when the, when the wills put out there. They didn't get what they wanted. This person didn't get this. This person didn't get that. They're all angry at, you, at each other. And they don't, guess what happens? They don't speak for years to each other because they wanted material possessions or whatever it is. They don't speak for years. They nurse their grudge. Every time they think of their relatives, they get angrier. <laughs> and all, that happens all the time. And you have this situation here. So how can Jacob return home? without dealing with this unpleasant task first. This has to be the first order of business. You see what's on his mind? Hey, I'm going back home. i got to deal with something now. It won't be easy. It won't be fun, but it is, has to be dealt with. 
Jacob wonders, how does my brother feel about me now? Now, that's quite a change of heart for Jacob. Amazing change. Originally, quite frankly, he could have cared less how his brother felt. He pulled the wool over his eyes twice. It didn't even faze him. Not at all. But as, as the Lord worked in Jacob's life, using Laban as his instrument to hew off the rough edges, to, humi- to humble him, to even humiliate him, to crush him, Jacob begins to realize somewhere along the way, hey, I've, I've got to make things right with my brother. This is how I treated my brother, how Laban's treating me. I've wronged him. I must seek his, rel- his reconciliation. It's, you know, I, when I thought about this, I asked myself the question, is this the evidence of God's grace or what? It's amazing. Jacob, the graceless one, now extending grace to his brother. That's the effects of amazing grace. It took the grace of God in his own life for him to extend grace to his brother. But I thought of this also. Could it be that Jacob's motive for wanting to reconcile is because it's solely based on fear that Esau is going to take revenge. He's afraid he's going to get revenge on him. So maybe it wasn't so much grace as, hey, Jacob just wants to save his own hide. Is that what's going on here? Well, we're going to read that Jacob was afraid. It's true that he was afraid. His fear is very real. And that fear is going to motivate him to reconcile. But that's not the whole picture. Not at all. First of all, God has worked in Jacob's life all these years. And you can see that he's worked in it. Different man. He's going to, and also, he's going to go after, out, out of his way to reach Esau. Out of his way. Esau is settled in a place called Seir and Edom. That's far to the south. It's, it's, in fact, it's on the east side of the Jordan River, far to the south. In fact, in Genesis 27, Isaac said, hey, to Esau, he said, he prophesied this, you're going to live in a, a land away from the fertility of the earth. Basically, you're going to live in a desolate de- desert area, and that's where he goes. Jacob doesn't need to go there. It's not a geographical necessity. It's out of his way. But here's the thing. It's the spiritual necessity. The Lord wants him to, to get right with his brother. Therefore, he must reconcile. He sees this. He knows this in his heart and his mind. He knows this is what God wants. You know, the New Testament accurately describes what Jacob's heart was like before he was saved and, and what our heart is like before we were saved. Colossians 1.21 says, you were formerly alienated, when you were unsaved, you were alienated from God. You were hostile in mind, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Sounds like the old Jacob, the guy who thought evil and then what he did resulted in evil. No concern for the feelings of others, no regret for what he had done about Esau. He just took off and got out of there, not at that time. So what changes, here's a question, what changes a person from being a deceiver into one who's a reconciler? Colossians 1.22, yet Christ has now reconciled you and his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In order for us to be reconciled to others, we must first be reconciled to Christ. It's got to happen in that order. You're, you're, we're, you see, we're born as enemies of Christ. We're enemies of the gospel of Christ. We're at war against God and we hate him. We have nothing to do with him. We want nothing to do with him. People talk about God all the time, but in reality, the sinner hates him, and we hate righteous living. So we have no interest in any of that. So as an unsaved person, if I hurt someone, if I offend them, it may not bother me one bit. 
I, I, might, I have a conscience, yes, but it may be weak. It may be sealed, a seared conscience. And as a lost person, I certainly don't have the Holy Spirit to convict me. I don't have that. I don't, have the word. I don't care about the Word of God. I'm not reading that. So why should I be interested in reconciling with someone in that condition? That's where a work of grace is necessary in the heart. Christ died on the cross to reconcile us to himself. And so whereas formerly we were enemies of God, now we're his friends. We became reconciled. And once Christ truly reconciles a person to himself, guess what happens? That person realizes, hey, I need to reconcile to others I mistreated. And so he's got a new heart and a new desire, and his desire is to please the Lord, and that's what he's, he must do. Now, maybe there's somebody in your past tonight. You're thinking of someone in your past or even present you have wronged, you mistreated in some way, and you didn't care. Didn't care. You, there's been no attempt to reconcile uh, or making things right. But Matthew 5 has something to say about that. Matthew 5, 23, Jesus said, If you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember. This is interesting because this is what happened to, to Jacob. He remembered something about his brother. Hey, my brother, I got I to get right with him. You're at the altar. You're an Old Testament saint. You're at the altar worshiping, presenting an offering. And there you remember at the altar. Wait a minute. I've got, I, I'm remembering something here. That I remember that my brother has something against me. And so you leave your, altar, your offering at the altar and and go, and it says, first, be reconciled to your brother. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. That's the order. A person can be engaged in his duties with God. He can even worship. But if you have hurt someone, how is it you can really worship God? How is it your conscience isn't weighed down with this, this heavy weight of that person's? You can see his face. You can see her face. I've got to reconcile with that person. It could be a relative, it could be a friend, it could be a lost person, it could be a saved person. So if you have offended someone, brother in Christ or unbeliever, then we sh that, you should make that a priority. I've got to get right with this person. Something I've got to do. Jacob is coming to the realization that before he goes home, God said, go home. Okay, I'm going home. But now I remember something. I remember I've got to get right with my brother because I messed him over pretty good 20 years ago. And that's what he says about to do. That's now his top priority. So how does he go about it? Well, he comes up with a strategy. And his strategy, first of all, involves sending messengers. Look at verses 3 to 5. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom that's way in the south. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with labor and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants that I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Well, they didn't have email back then. Today, we'd probably say, well, shoot the guy an email. Well, quite honestly, that's probably not good enough if you're trying to reconcile with somebody. They didn't have email. So they have to gather together some messengers and send these guys all the way down to where Esau is. By the way, this is actually the second group of messengers in this chapter. Uh, the, you see the word uh, angels in verse 1? Uh, that's, that, that's also the word for messenger, same word. And verse 3, where it says messenger, it's the same word both times. So there's divine messengers and human messengers. God has sent his messengers, his divine messengers, to Jacob to encourage him. And now Jacob is going to send human messengers 
to Esau to encourage a reconciliation. Notice how Jacob humbles himself. Look what he says in verse 4. He calls his brother, my Lord Esau. When has he ever said that? He had no intention of saying anything like that earlier. My Lord Esau. And then he says, he calls himself, your servant Jacob. Again in verse 5, my Lord Esau. That's the language of submission. You talk about a role reversal here. Back in Genesis 25, the Lord had prophesied to Rebekah. Uh, he, he had said this while the twins were in, a room, in, in the womb. And these are twin brothers, by the way. Usually twins are really like this. He, said, he had said, the older shall serve the younger. Esau shall serve Jacob. That's how it's going to be, the Lord said. Then in Genesis 27, Isaac tells Esau, your brother, you shall serve. And that truth is going to stand. It can't be revoked. Remember when Isaac said, I, I blessed him, and yes, he shall be blessed. Can't change it now. Not at all. Those roles will not be reversed. The birthright and the blessing are going to go to Jacob, not Esau. So is Jacob now trying to reverse the roles? No, he's not trying to do that. He's simply trying to ingratiate himself to his brother, trying to humble himself. He's trying to show his repentance by saying these things. I'm, you're my Lord Esau. I'm your servant, Jacob. That's not just good old-fashioned ancient Near Eastern courtesy or hospitality. It really shows Jacob's guilty conscience and his willingness to humble himself, something he never would have done before, to reconcile to his twin brother. He lets Esau know where he's been for the last 20 years. I've been with Uncle Laban. You remember good old Uncle Laban, our favorite, our favorite uncle? No longer our favorite uncle. You know, he says, I never intended to make that my permanent address. I was just sojourning. I was just a temporary resident, just there for a while. That's what I planned on doing. I didn't plan on staying there 20 years. Doesn't go into detail all that Laban had done to him, none of that. He does say, I've, I, you know, he shows them all his wealth. Look what I have. I've acquired all this stuff. That's not to boast, by the way. This is, he's not trying to boast here. He's trying to humble himself. Um, so why would he say, I've got all this prosperity? It may be his way of saying to, to Esau, I'm not worried about the birthright. I'm not, I don't need to worry about a blessing. I've got enough here. Maybe trying to downplay the blessing and the birthright. Then he gets to his point in verse 5. His purpose in sending the message. Here's my purpose in sending the message to you, Esau. I'm, that I may find favor in your sight. I'm just simply trying to find favor in your sight. I want to reconcile, he says. That request in the scripture is typically made of a subordinate to a superior. He just wants his brother to accept him. He just wants peace between them. Let me say, if you've offended someone and you've let it stew for a little while or even a long while, it's going to take some real humility on your part toward that offended person. Proverbs talking about offended brothers, hard to be one than a, a walled city. Be ready to humble yourself. It's going to take a lot of humility. This is part of a strategy. I'll send messengers down to Seir, down to Esau, and I'll put some feelers out and I'll see what's going on with him. And he does. Secondly, his second part of his strategy, he divides his possessions. Look at verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. Furthermore, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, the company which is left will escape. Now, there's no record of what Esau actually said. Esau apparently made a few words. Doesn't seem to say a whole lot. The only message they bring back is, hey, we just want you to know one thing. 
here's what, here's our, here's what we have to tell you. Esau's on his way to meet you with 400 men. That's the message. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you something. It doesn't sound good. It raises several questions. Why is Esau coming so quickly? He's on his way now. Why isn't there a longer verbal response from him? Why is he coming with 400 men? Is that necessary? Is he coming peacefully? Or is he coming to attack our family here? Is he coming to, to hurt us in some way? Steal the animals. What's he doing? Jacob doesn't know. What's Jacob's response? He's greatly afraid and distressed. To capture that idea, one translation says, Jacob was terrified. And that's what he was. I can understand this. I understand his fear. I really do. I truly do. Uh, put yourself in his shoes. You can see, hey, this, is, this could be really, this is a sketchy deal here. This could be really scary. But here's the question I have. Has he soon, so soon forgotten meeting the angels of God just prior to this? Now, there was a reason God sent those angels there, not just for any yeah, There's a reason. He wanted to assure Jacob, look, I'm with you. Things are going to get rough along the way here, but I'm with you. Jacob didn't know that. I don't know about you, but if I had seen the angels of God with my own two eyes, I might have a little more confidence at this point. How, how soon we forget, though, right? That's how we are. We're like Jacob. How soon we forget the encouragements of God, of God to our faith. How soon we forget the, his unchanging promises. God's made promises again and again. And what do we do? We worry about everything, right? Constantly. You know, the sermons we hear on Sunday, we may, forget, we may forget by Monday. What did Mike preach about yesterday? I hope you remember his sermon and nothing else. I'm pretty sure you're going to remember that sermon. The Bible we read this morning, maybe we forget by this afternoon. The prayer we were, that we, we prayed this morning, we're so confident in God, maybe that evaporated by this afternoon. You know, we don't, we don't focus on the encouragements to our faith. We're not focused on those things. We just let it go. Oh, God said this, and God said that, and the fellowships of the saints here, and people are praying for me, and all these things, and phew, it goes out to your mind. Faced with your problem, right? We don't focus on these things. Jacob, who had earlier met the very angels of God, think about this. How many people have met the angels of God in the scripture? He met the angels of God, and basically on two different occasions, and now he's terrified, totally terrified. Forgot all about that. We might be tempted to say of Jacob, oh, ye of little faith. That's what I thought, oh, ye of little faith. He is showing a weak faith, isn't he? Given what he's seen and heard from God himself. But then I think of myself and my too often weak faith, and I have to say, oh, me of little faith. What about me? I could be like Jacob many times. He's terrified. I will say this, he's terrified, but he's not paralyzed. Some people, when they receive a bad news, they're paralyzed, they're mobile, they can't even move, they can't even think, they can't even do anything. But not Jacob. His fear, nothing else drives him to action. So he immediately divides his family up into two companies, two groups. Uh, his possessions, his family, all into two groups, reminding us of verse 2, the two camps. Maybe that's where he got the idea. The reasoning being this, if he thinks, well, if Esau attacks one group, the other group may have an opportunity to escape. I guess that's the best he can do. The fact of the matter is, if Esau comes and attacks one group, I don't see anybody surviving out of the two groups. Not at all. They, these, are, these guys are probably trained to fight, 400 guys. They probably had to fight down in Seir to get the land they have now. They probably had to fight for that land and eat them. And think about this, 400 men versus servants and women and children. 
Who do you think is going to win that battle? I can understand taking some kind of action. This is the best he can do. Esau's in route. He's on his way. Uh, there's no time to waste. But is this course of action really the answer? What is this going to accomplish? Jacob, Jacob's position militarily is weak, maybe even non-existent. Esau's position is one of strength, 400 men. This could be a slaughter. So now what can be done? Sit around and wait? Sit around and wait for, you know, the thundering hoofbeats, to, if they're on horses, to come? 400 horses, maybe 400 men to show up? Wait for them to show up with possible revenge on their minds? Wait for a possible slaughter? Jacob, again, the last time he heard from Esau, those words were, I'm going to kill you. And those words may be ringing in his ears still. I mean, that's the last thing he heard, right? Why would he think any differently? What would you do if you're faced with this crisis? How would you handle it? What, would a follower of the, what should a follower of the Lord do under such dire circumstances? What should he do? Well, we do well to follow the next move Jacob makes, which is the right one, and that's this. He cast himself upon the Lord. Look at verses 9 through 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan, and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Let me tell you something. This is a model prayer. It really is. I would, if you want to study prayer in the Bible, this is the one you need to study. We talk about Paul's prayers. This is also worth looking at. And we can learn something about prayer if we think through it carefully. Four elements I want you to see in this prayer that are important. First of all, Jacob makes his appeal to the one who aided his forefathers. He makes an appeal to the one who aided his forefathers. He says in verse 9, O God of my father, and, uh, and uh, Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country, your relatives, and I'll prosper you. Look, look at those words, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord. He's not saying that the Lord's not his God. He's not saying that. He's calling on the God who aided his grandfather Abraham. Lord, aren't you the one that helped my grandfather Abraham? Aren't you the one that helped my grandfather, my father Isaac, in all his difficulties and, and troubles? Think about this. God helped Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 12 when Abraham is in Egypt and he's all afraid? Why? Because they don't tell anybody, he says to Sarah, don't tell anybody you're my wife. Why? They might kill me. He's afraid, and God took care of that situation. And then when God spared Lot, remember Abraham goes to the Lord in prayer again over the city of Sodom, please spare the righteous people there, and God spares Lot. Again, he came to, God, to Abraham's aid. And he came to Isaac's aid. Remember when uh, he was with Abimelech, and uh, he says, I'm afraid, he tells his wife, I'm afraid because they might kill me because of you. Same problem with Abraham and Sarah. And then God helps him through that situation, and he comes out of it okay. And then God comes to his aid again when Isaac becomes so prosperous that Abimelech and everybody's jealous of him. You know, God's the one who comes to the aid of his people. And Jacob prays this, and he says, since you aided my forefathers, I know you're going to aid me too. You're going to help me too. And here's something we need to understand. The Lord has a long track record of helping 
uh, of intervening in the lives of people, his people, throughout church history and throughout the Bible. He's got a long track record. We're not the first to come to bring our petitions to him. You have a bunch of people behind you who trusted God, and he helped those people. And we can look to those people who went before us, and we can see the hand of God at work in their lives, and we can say, Lord, help them. Why, is he not, why would he not help me? I'm one of his people as well. And so he makes his appeal to the one who aided his forefathers. But the second element is prayer. He reminds God of the promises made to him. He reminds him of his promises. Verse 9, he says, Lord, you, you said to me, he said, remember he says, you're the, my, my father, the God of my father Abraham and Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, I'll prosper you. You said this to me, Lord. You told me to return to my land, and I'm doing this. You said it. I'm doing what you said, and you said you would prosper me. Actually, that phrase, you will prosper me, is really, the literal wording is really great. It goes like this, I will do good to you. I will do good with you. I promise to do good with you, Jacob. Now, if the Lord said, I will do good with you, that means he's not going to do bad with him. He doesn't have to worry about this. And then in verse 12, the kind of that prayer's bookended by promises, verse 12, for you said, this is what you said, Lord, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea. Again, you said, you said, Lord, this, and this is what you said. You also said this. I'm trusting in what you said. Do you want to know the best way to pray? Pray about what God has said in his word. Now, make sure you don't take that out of context, you know. Jeremiah 29, 11. You're going to pray for deliverance from, you know, Babylon or whatever. <laughs> Don't do that. You're not in Babylon, okay? Uh, the Word of God gives us our content for prayer, though. This is what Mueller did all the time, George Mueller, always praying, basing his prayers on the Scripture, always the way he read the Scripture, he would read the Scripture and pray about what it said. Read the Scripture and pray about what it said. Read the Scripture and pray about what it said. That's the content for our prayer. Now, so if you go to 1 John 1, 9, and you read these words, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our, our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then guess what? You should confess your sins. That's what he said to do. And if you read Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, then you should ask the Lord, Lord, make me heavenly minded, not so worldly minded. I'm so worldly minded. Make me heavenly minded. When you pray, ask the Lord to do what he said he wants to do in his word. That's the way to pray. That's what Jacob does. Lord, I'm, you said this. I'm rehearsing this before you, God didn't forget all this stuff. And I want you to know I'm trusting in your word here. Third element in prayer, he confesses his unworthiness. Verse 10, I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant Jacob, or your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two companies. Interesting, he knows he's God's servant, by the way. He calls himself God's servant here. What did he call himself earlier? Esau's servant. But isn't it, shouldn't it be that the servant of God is also the servant of people? If we're serving God, that's first and foremost. But we're also called to serve others, you know. And he says, in effect, here, God's been so good to me. He's been so faithful to me. He's been so kind to me. He's shown me his loyal love. I don't deserve any of it. In fact, when I left my home to go to Laban, I only had one possession in my hand. That was my staff, my trusty staff. But now look what God's done. He's blessed me but beyond belief. I'm not worthy of all this. I'm unworthy. I love the words. Look at verse 10. I love the words, I am unworthy of all. Unworthy of all God's done for me. That's such a great phrase because literally he's saying I am small. 
Put it literally. It says, I am small, Lord. I am little. I am little. Literally, I'm little and I've always been little. I'm un too insignificant for you to have poured out your blessings upon me. Both spiritual and material blessings. I'm insignificant. I don't deserve any of this. Who am I? I'm nobody. This is Jacob really getting it now. All of a sudden, finally he gets it, right? After all these, this time, I get it. This is not the arrogant Jacob, not the deceiving Jacob, not the conniving Jacob. This is the humble Jacob. <laughs> he now sees himself for what he really is, unworthy before a glorious and generous God. God's been so generous to me, I don't deserve any of it. That's a great place to be. That's where you want to be. That's where the Lord wants you to be, in that place right there, realizing that without him you are nothing and can do nothing. And so Jesus says in John 15, 1, without me you can do what? You can do nothing. One of my favorite verses. Well, I guess it's my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses, because I'm always going to it constantly. Jacob is totally depending upon God because he knows, he, he knows God. He knows he can trust in him, and I hope we know that also. Now, he's, he's going to struggle, okay? And as, as time goes on here, he's going to struggle, but we struggle too with our faith. The fourth element, the final element in prayer, he petitions God for deliverance. Verse 11, he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. He says, Deliver me. That word deliver used to uh, rescuing a victim out of danger. It's used in 1 Samuel 17 when David rescued uh, a sheep out of the paw of a bear or a lion. Same word there. Uh, in this case, the lion is Esau. Jacob is the sheep. And, and, and as if to enforce the idea of exactly whom he's worried about, he says, deliver me from the hand. He says it twice. Deliver me from the hand of my brother. You know, my brother Esau, that's who I need deliverance from. You ever pray when you're in desperate straits and you really get down to the nitty-gritty and you say exact, exact words? Here's what I mean, Lord. I mean I'm in trouble and I need your help because of this reason right here. That's what he's doing. Why such a desperate prayer? Because Jacob says, here's another phrase I love in this prayer, for I fear him. Let me just tell you the truth, Lord, I fear him. I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid of my brother Esau. Now, that's how we want to pray, honestly. All honestly, uh, honesty before God. Tell the Lord the truth. Tell him exactly how you feel. You don't necessarily need to tell everybody in the church exactly how you feel, all right? That's why we go to the Lord. We can tell him exactly how we feel about everything. Didn't the writers of the Psalms do that? Again and again, they told the Lord exactly how they felt. Honestly confess your fears to him, your worries, your doubts to him. He says, I fear him that he will come and attack me. And also the mothers, also the children. He's afraid that Esau, this is his great fear, is going to attack the whole family. And so he does the right thing in these circumstances. He petitions God for deliverance. Let me, let me tell you, whatever else you do, whatever else you do in a situation like it that where you're, you're faced with is difficult, you can do no better than to pray to the God who was our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. You can do no better than that. Now, I'm sure there's somebody in here tonight, there may be even several people who are facing some kind of crisis or will or have. Let me tell you, you don't want to try to go this alone. You don't want to try to figure this out on your own the situation you're in. You don't want to just strategize the best way you know how. There may be some strategy necessary. 
But what you want to do is cast yourself upon the Lord. That's what you want to do. Take your burdens to him, depend upon him, stand on his promises, and trust in him to work things out for your good and his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful for your word, what it says to us. We're thankful for the faith that we see that it produces, uh, the encouragements of faith that come our way. Lord, help us not to neglect those things, to see how you bless us in many ways with encouragements to our faith. Through the preaching of the word is one way. And the fellowship of the saints and uh, fellow believers praying for us and so many things. Lord, help us to depend upon these things. Help us to depend upon you. We pray for those tonight who are hurting. Those who are facing a crisis or a difficulty in your life, please help them, Lord, to trust in you. We pray you'll work things out for them. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.